invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me once again to the book of Genesis, to Genesis chapter 1. preached a couple sermons on the first two verses of Genesis 1, and now we're dealing with some theories that uh, have been used to interpret these verses, but I want to read these verses again, first of all, beginning with verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Again, let's pray for God's help in understanding his word. Most blessed and glorious God, we do thank you that your word is tried as silver tried in the furnace seven times. We thank you that it is perfect. It is that which is true altogether. We bless you that there is never anything that needs to be changed about this word. And we thank you, Lord, that even though many times we have to amend things we have said because of our lack of understanding in the first place, this has never taken place with your holy word. Your word abides forever. Help us, O Lord, to be committed to your word, to the defense of your word, to the proclamation of your word. Bless us to that end even now with your spirit to lead us in those ways that are in accord with your word, those understandings that please you. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Genesis chapter 1 begins with the majestic statement in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, we are immediately informed that the earth in its original form was uninhabitable. And with respect to this original condition, uh, three things are said in verse 2. First of all, that it was desolation and emptiness. Hebrew words that describe a place that's desert-like, uninhabitable. And secondly, darkness was on the surface of the deep. And in some contexts, darkness is associated with evil, but here we're not talking about that. It's just simply the absence of light. And this darkness, we are told, was on the surface of the deep. And the waters in this passage and also the deep in the middle of the verse, they uh, refer to the same thing. So the surface of the earth at first was not in a firm or solid state. It was a mass of murky fluid cloaked in darkness, utterly incapable for sustaining life. And then we are told in the third place that the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. And this was with an intent of, of changing and transforming the earth. This afternoon, we are going to be examining the second and third of three theories that have been proposed as a means of harmonizing these first two verses of Genesis with modern science. And again, let me remind you that Genesis chapters 1 and 2 are pillars on which the whole Bible rests. And therefore, we need to take special care that we not allow these pillars to be knocked down. Satan is after these pillars. And he will seek to destroy the whole Bible by undermining these pillars. So again, I entreat you to gird up the loins of your mind, even as we consider some things that may not be so quickly uh, considered, because maybe we haven't thought of them before. 
And again, we're taking up those theories that are associated with the verses that I've just read. In our last study, last week, we looked up, the, we, we examined the whole, the whole issue of the gap theory, or also known as the ruin restoration or restitution theory. And we noted that the gap theory includes millions of years as well as six normal days. And in response to Darwin, Bible-believing Christians invented various ways to squeeze millions of years into Genesis chapter 1. And one of the most famous of these ways is the gap theory. And gap theorists, they believe in six normal length creation days, but they insert a gap of millions of years, even billions of years, between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And between these two years, this gap, uh, there is a great catastrophe that they propose happened. In the distant, dateless past, billions of years ago, God created the heavens and the earth. But after Satan's fall, sin entered the universe and brought on the universe or brought onto the earth judgment in the form of a flood. And all the plant and animal and human fossils that date today, they go back to those millions of years before God fashioned the earth in these six days. And so Genesis 1-2 pictures a judged, ruined cosmos and the beginning in verse 3, the rest of the chapter portrays its recreation or restitution. And I'm going over this because there are several here that were not with us uh, last week. And then just very briefly, we gave a refutation by way of seven arguments. Uh, I'm not going to go over all those arguments. But we noted, first of all, that it reads into Genesis 1-2 what is not there. And this theory is a perfect example of uh, the exegesis of desperation. It simply reads things into the text that are not there. It translates uh, the word was with the word became. The earth became without form, verse 2. It became this, as if it wasn't, it was judged. And yet we saw that, I'm not going to go over the details, but the Hebrew grammar does not allow for that kind of a translation. And the judgment that is supposed is the uh, is located in those words desolation and emptiness, or without form and void. But in other places, those words, they simply refer to a wilderness or a desert that is, doesn't have life in it. And Genesis 1-2 is not the scene of a judgment occasioned by the fall of angels, but a description of the original undeveloped condition of the earth. And then we also noted that the scriptures clearly teach that death and decay came through Adam's sin. And this is taught in Romans 5 and Romans 8. And this isn't something that happened billions of years ago before Adam ever came on the scene. It came as a result of Adam's sin. We also noted that in Genesis 1, what God has just made, he calls good six times and very good at the end of the chapter. But the gap theory it proposes, judgmental catastrophe, so severe that billions of creatures are wiped out. And hardly does that fit into the idea of something that is pronounced very good. And then we noted that the gap theory contradicts the Sabbath command of Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, which is to commemorate the six days of creation. Well, now I want to come this afternoon to uh, a second and hopefully a third theory. And we're going to spend more time on the second theory than on the third, if we're going to get to the both this afternoon. I think we will. But the second theory, and this is in your outlines, is the historical creation theory. We also might call it the land of Palestine theory. And this is something that's been proposed very recently. The gap theory was made popular 
started over about 200 years ago. But unlike that gap theory, which, which is about 200 years old, was popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible and largely ref refuted since then, uh, this is much more of a modern theory, and it's gaining traction still in various quarters. I first became acquainted with this when somebody who attended this church, and it wasn't too long ago, recommended this book by John Salehammer. And the book is Genesis Unbound, published in 1996, and it's being hailed by a number of prominent evangelical theologians. And among those contributing to the blurbs in the front of the book, for instance, are Richard Patterson of Liberty University, Daniel Block of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Trevor Longman of Westminster Theological Seminary. And Salehammer himself, who wrote this book, he died just three years ago. He was professor of Old Testament studies at Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary in California. So these, this isn't a theory that was pumped out, you see, by some kind of a secular university that didn't believe in the Bible at all. These are Bible believers that want to reconcile what they read in the scriptures with science in some way. And in this book, Salehammer explains why he calls this approach historical creationism. And I want to read. He says, this view is a form of creationism because it understands Genesis 1 and 2 to be a literal and realistic account of God's creation of the universe. It holds that these chapters teach that God created the universe out of nothing. There are no gaps in the creation account of Genesis 1, nor is there a recreation or restitution of an original creation. So he's denying the gap theory. I believe Genesis 1 and 2 teach that God created the whole universe during a time in which the writer calls the beginning. And that beginning was not a point of time, but a period of time. You see, verse 1 is a big, long period, and in all likelihood, a long period of time. After that period of time, God went on to prepare the land. And notice, that's the land, not the earth. The land as a place for human beings to dwell in. And he then explains that historic creationism, it differs from scientific creationism, because it doesn't start from the assumption that science holds the answer to the meaning of the text, but and because it assumes that the author of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 intends that his readers read what he writes here as literal history. So he assumes that this is literal history in this chapter. And what I want to do now is just give you more of a description of this theory, what is called historical creationism, or what we've called the land of Palestine theory. And the, word, the first thing that we, we notice, there's two main points here about this theory. The word beginning in Genesis 1.1, it refers to an indefinite period of time. And in the quote that I just read to you, he says that the beginning of Genesis 1 verse 1, quote, was not a point of time, but a period of time, in all likelihood a long period of time. And then later on, on page 14, he writes, since the Hebrew word translated beginning refers to an indefinite period of time, we cannot say for certain when God created the world or how long he took to create it. This period could have spanned as much as several billion years, or it could have been much less. The text simply does not tell us how long. It tells us only that God did it during the beginning of our universe's history. And then further on in this book, he says this concerning the 
word that's translated beginning, the Hebrew word that's beginning in Genesis 1.1, he says there is no way to limit the duration of the word beginning. It could refer to billions of years, to a few thousand years, or to a period as brief as a few months or days. The length of time of this beginning is precisely what is left unspecified by the term. And then he adds that two distinct time periods are mentioned in Genesis 1. The first time period is what's called the beginning in verse 1. God created the universe in the beginning. And there's no time limitations placed upon that period. And then the second period, which begins with verse 2 and goes on into chapter 2, this is when God prepared the Garden of Eden. And notice the emphasis. It's all about the Garden of Eden in chapter 1 even. He's preparing the Garden of Eden for man's dwelling. And that activity, it occurred in one week, one literal six-day week, and then ending with the Sabbath after that. And Salhammer argues that in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 10, the author uses this term reshit, or beginning, to refer to the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom. And in that verse we read, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, Kalna in the land of Shinar. And so he's saying, well, this isn't just something that happened at, at just a particular point of time, but it was something that involved establishing several cities. And he also appeals to the way the Bible speaks of the reign of Israel's kings. And here I want to quote again. He says, the first part of a king's reign usually was not counted as part of the official length of his reign. An unspecified period was allowed during which the king actually reigned, but it was not officially counted as part of his reign. After that period, whatever its duration, the years of the king's reign were counted in consecutive order. You see what he's saying? There's a part of the beginning that's not really officially his reign. It's called the beginning, and then there's the rest of his reign. And he gives us an example, Jeremiah 28 and verse 1. Yeah, there's other, another couple examples, but I'm going to quote this one here. It happened in the same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month. So you see what he's saying? He's noticing that the beginning comes up at least to the fourth year and the fifth month that Hananiah, the son of Azur, the prophet, spoke. And so he argues that the first four and a half years that are mentioned there in Jeremiah 28, they are not part of his official reign. So Salhammer's interpretation, as he paraphrases Genesis 1, going taking that idea, if he comes back now to Genesis 1, he has a whole section in his book in which he paraphrases the whole first chapter. And it begins this way. This is how verse 1 reads in his paraphrase. Long ago, God created the world. He created the sun, the moon, and the stars, as well as all the creatures which inhabit the earth. He created them all out of nothing, not in a single instance of time, but over a vast period of time. And then later on, he writes, When my children ask me where the dinosaurs fit into the biblical account of creation, I tell them that they were created, lived, and became extinct during the beginning. So it's during those billions of years or millions that's called the beginning. And uh, this is how he interprets his Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And then the second major feature of this uh, approach is the beginning with verse 2 in Genesis 1. 
the Hebrew word Eretz, which is translated earth in verse 1, is translated land. He says this should be translated land. And it's referring not to the whole earth, but it's referring to what will be the promised land. And in Salehammer's theory, a significant transition takes place from Genesis 1-1 to Genesis 1-2 with the meaning of this word, Hebrew word Eretz, or Aretz. In verse 1, it means earth, in other words, the planet earth. But in verse 2, it means land, because the focus of the rest of the chapter is not on the whole earth, but it's on the special parcel of land that God is preparing for his people. This is a very important part of his, his thesis. In other words, beginning in verse 2, Genesis 1 is really describing the preparation of the promised land. And this land is also equivalent to the Garden of Eden in chapter 2. And at first this land was formless and void, uninhabitable for humanity, verse 2. And beginning in verse Genesis 1-2, God fashions then from that point on a special place for his people. And the land that was without form and void and then was fashioned into a habitable place for his people, it was the same land that was later promised to Abraham and his descendants. And it was the land that God gave to Israel after their exodus from Egypt and wandering in the wilderness. So the land that God is preparing in the six days of creation in Genesis 1 this is the garden that's described also in chapter 2. And the boundaries of that large garden are the same as the boundaries of the promised land called Palestine. And just as God prepared the Garden of Eden as a place where he would have fellowship with his people, this same land was inherited then later on by God's people after their wilderness wanderings as they come back into the same place as, and have fellowship with God. And he goes on to argue that in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 10, the same Hebrew word Eretz or Aretz, it clearly means land as opposed to sea. Notice what it says here. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering together of the waters he called seas. But he would say God called the, the dry land land. And uh, so his translation goes this way. God called the dry ground land. And from that point on, the creation account is, is, is that special place where human beings are to dwell. They're to dwell in this promised land. And uh, in verse 11, the land is commanded to sprout forth with fruit, fruit trees. In verse 20, the birds fly over the land. In verse 24, the land is commanded to bring forth livestock and wild animals. And he argues that in Genesis chapter 11, there is a contrast between the promised land and the land of Shinar. Flip over with me to that, that chapter, Genesis chapter 11. This is an important part of his argument to prove what he wants to say about the land and the translation of this word as land instead of earth. Genesis 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east. So in other words, if they journeyed from the east, what direction are they heading? They're heading west. They journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And he contends that it's unlikely that in verse 1, the word Eretz should be earth rather than land. 
So he's saying that the whole land had one language. And it's the same thing that that's, he thinks is in the next verse. It's unlikely that in verse 1 the author has in mind the whole planet, he argues. But instead he's thinking of the locality on this planet in which everybody happened to live. They were all gathered together in this land. And then in verse 2 he says that they journeyed east to the land of Shinar. And uh, I, I said they journeyed west. I, I mis misinterpreted that. They journeyed east. And the first man and the first woman, they were cast out of the garden eastward. Let's remember Genesis chapter 3 and verse 24. And so here now fallen mankind moves even further away from that special place of God's presence. And a central theme of the whole book of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is God's promise of a special place where he will once again make his special presence known. Now, I trust you could get something of the flavor of this theory. In many ways, it's very appealing, this theory is. For instance, there's a definitely a thread of continuity in Scripture, from Eden to the place of God's special presence in Palestine, and eventually the new heavens and the new earth, where God will have his special presence with his people. But as we're now going to see, there's some really serious problems with this theory. And so now I want to get to some refutation of this theory. In the first place, the word beginning in verse 1, Genesis 1, 1, it doesn't mean an indefinite period of time. None of the Hebrew lexicons say that the Hebrew reshith, the word for beginning, none of them say that this can refer to an extended period of time. You know how you turn to a dictionary, you have all the different meanings of the word. None of them list this as one of the meanings. Nor can support be found for this idea in the biblical references to the beginning of the reign of certain kings. And those places that merely refer to the early part of a, of a king's reign, that's all they're referring to. They're not talking about a big, long period of time. They're talking about just the very beginning of, of a king's reign. And you take the text that he cites, Jeremiah 28 and verse 1. It happened in the same year at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fourth year and in the fifth month. And these words, they don't refer to a long period of time. They refer to the first part of his reign. Zelhar argues it's not really even part of the, of the reign. It's kind of what preceded it, but it's part of his reign. And it would be correct to say in the beginning, let me just put this in modern terms, to, to our current president. It would be correct for us to say in the beginning of President Trump's presidency, there was a controversy over the travel ban. Remember that? It happened right away. So long ago, it seems like we probably almost forgot about that. It was probably the very first controversy that took place. So we would be right to say, in the beginning of his presidency, there was a travel ban. But at this point now, three years later, we wouldn't say in the beginning of Trump's presidency, he was tried in the Senate on impeachment charges. And why wouldn't we say that? Because his impeachment trial came during the last two weeks of January, and he was acquitted on February 5th. And so from our perspective, this is not something that happened at the beginning. So just stop and think about Salehammer's idea that the beginning of Genesis 1-1 included millions and even billions of years, which after a six-day fashioning of the of special land took place after that. It would be like calling the first hundred years of a man's life the beginning of his life and calling the final day of his life that part which was not the beginning. If you compare the billions of years, 
to just a little bit, the six days of, of creation. How could you call those billions of years the beginning and then just these six days, uh, that which comes after the beginning? And so just think about this. Now, there are also a couple other grammatical difficulties to the way that he interprets Genesis 1.1, but they're very complicated, the Hebrew, and so I'm going to not get into those difficulties, but if some of you want to check it out, I can give you some reading material on that. But I do want to add that the way that Sailhammer defines the word beginning in Genesis 1.1 as including millions and even billions of years, this belies his claim that all of this interpretation has been driven by exegesis of Scripture rather than attempt to fit Scripture with science. He says, given what appears to be true about the age of the earth, it is likely that millions or billions of years transpired during this time called the beginning. So this idea of trying to figure out where these billions of years fit in, so-called, this is obviously driving his interpretation. Where could it be possibly derive these millions or billions of years just from the text? In the next sentence, he says, when my children ask me where the dinosaurs fit into the biblical account of creation, I tell them that they were created, lived, and became extinct during the beginning. And this, too, it seems to indicate a desire to fit science and the Bible together. And once again, the authority becomes science in terms of how we interpret the scripture then at that point. Science is telling us what the beginning means not the Bible. And here we do well to take heed to Sarfati's warning against, here I quote, treating modern uniformitarian views magisterially and allowing them to override the text. A magistrate is an authority. You treat these uniformitarian scientific views as if they are the authority magisterially and let them override the text. We're warned against that. But now I want to give you a second argument against this theory. And is that the transition from the interpretation or the translation of the term Eretz in verse 1 and then Eretz in verse 2, the same Hebrew word for earth or land, this transition from translating it as earth in verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth, to land in verse 2, same Hebrew word, it's, it's not obvious that there's this transition intended. And this is especially so in the original Hebrew. And the reason why this is so emphasized in the, in the original Hebrew is that the same word is at the, at the very last word in verse 1, and it's the very first word in verse 2. And so what Selhammer proposes is incredible. That we're to read verse 1, understanding that this refers to the whole planet, the earth, and then suddenly, without any explanation, when the very next word in the passage is the exact same word, somehow we're to understand that it's referring to a localized land. And indeed, the word can have two different meanings. But let's take another word, just to give you an illustration in modern-day English. The word church, you know, has different meanings. It can refer to the building that God's people meet in. It can refer to a local church. It can refer to the universal church worldwide. And suppose you heard these two sentences in which the word church is used in both sense, and they're put together right at the end of the beginning. Listen to what I'm going to say here. Before we could move in, it took almost a year for Joel Stickler to complete renovations of the church. The church is something for which we ought to be grateful. You see how I put those two sentences together? 
It took almost a year to complete the renovations of the church. The church is something for which we are to be grateful. And would you suppose then that in the first sentence I'm referring to the building that Joel renovated, but all of a sudden in the middle of uh, the very next word he used in the second sentence, we're all going to understand this is referring to the universal church. We should be grateful for the universal church. Obviously not. And I say the same kind of continuity ought to apply in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In coming back to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1, we read in the beginning that God created the heavens and the earth. Obviously, the earth in that statement is the whole planet on which we live. And immediately in the next verse, we're told that earth was without form and void. And it's perfectly obvious that verse 2, it's referring to the exact same earth that's been, just been mentioned in verse 1, the planet earth. And it's not until we get all the way down to verse 9 that this Hebrew word is used in a different sense of the land as opposed to the sea, of the waters being gathered together and then of the dry land appearing separately. And it's obvious that there is a different meaning in that place, but not in these first two verses. There's no obvious reason to take Eretz as land until we get to that verse in verse 9. And thus I say a Salharmer's argument that from verse 2 on to the rest of the chapter, Genesis 1 is describing the promised land. I say this has no basis. And his, his argument, it, it also has another related difficulty. He supposes that from verse 2 on, the whole chapter is all about the local land, what eventually would become the promised land. But let's ask a couple questions about this. Are we to suppose that the whole narrative in that chapter about dividing the water from the land, this is only about the land of Palestine. And the only place where there was chaos and everything was Palestine. God fixed up that little place there. But the rest of the earth, it was okay. What about the rest of the earth? What about the area that, is this the only part that was formless and void? And was the rest of the earth habitable and only Palestine uninhabitable? Or was the whole earth uninhabitable and only Palestine was made habitable? What, what is it? Likewise, we asked, did God create all these animals and these plants just for this Palestine? Is that what the whole chapter is about? It's all about how God made animals for this little piece of land. Obviously, God created the animals. He created the birds. He filled the seas with these creatures. To fill the land and the seas, he's talking about the whole planet. It's so obvious when you read the chapter that that's what God is talking about. But then by way of third refutation, the scriptures clearly teach that death and decay came through Adam's sin. And here we again refer to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. We read last week in Romans chapter 8 and verses 20 to 22 that refer to the creation groaning and travailing until now. And in a section in which he's seeking to answer several questions that have frustrated evangelicals for a long time, on page 29, Selhammer asks this question. What does this interpretation suggest about the supposed long periods of growth and development in the history of the universe, particularly the geological time periods on Earth? And in his answer to this question, he assumes that what took place during those long ages, it involved what he calls a process. Interesting word there, a process. And here's his answer to the question that he's posed about what do we do with all these geological time periods? I do not speculate on the process by which God created the universe during the beginning. 
The Bible does not explain that process. If billions of years really are covered by the simple statement in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then much of the processes described by modern scientists fall into the period covered by the Hebrew term beginning. Within that beginning would fit the countless geological ages, ice ages, and the many climactic changes on our planet. The many biological eras would also fit within the beginning of Genesis 1.1, including the long ages during which the dinosaurs roamed the earth. By the time human beings were created on the sixth day of the week, the dinosaurs already could have flourished and become extinct, all during the beginning recorded in Genesis 1.1. And then later on in this section, he responds to the question, where do we put the dinosaurs? He's a, series, a section in which he's answering one question after another. And he says, what do we do about these dinosaurs? Were they created in the beginning or were they created on the fifth or sixth day? And he answers that the Bible allows for the creation of dinosaurs in the beginning, Genesis 1.1. And he de yet he denies that this work of creation follow the course outlined by modern evolutionary theory. So he makes clear that he's not saying by process that I'm talking about evolution. But he adds this, Genesis 1.1 allows for a vast period of time during which God was at work in the world, creating new species of animals and allowing others to fall into extinction. The surviving bones and traces of the vast array of animals and plant life from the Earth's past stand as a striking testimony to the nature of God's work in the beginning. This leads me to ask, how does this square with Romans 5.12 and Romans 8.20-22. Let's, let's go to those passages once again. Just to get it fresh in your mind for the sake of those that weren't with us last week. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, first of all. Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. And thus death spread to all men, because all sinned. And clearly he's talking about the one man, Adam. Sin came through him. And what came as a result? Death entered the world through that sin. And then in chapter 8, verse 20, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. So Romans 5 and Romans chapter 8, they teach that death and suffering and the disintegration of the created order, it came as a result of Adam's sin. Adam was the covenant representative of the whole creation. Not only mankind, but the rest of creation was judged and cursed because of Adam's sin. But you see, Salheimer's theory, it assumes that in the beginning, supposedly, this Genesis 1-1, you got all these carnivorous predators eating one another. That's what the dinosaurs were. A lot of them were carnivorous. See their, ever see their long teeth? These weren't just people, animals that just chewed on grass. They chewed on each other ripped each other apart. And his theory assumes that all these things were living and dying for millions of years before Adam and his fall ever took place. And I say that's a contradiction of the teaching of Paul in Romans 5 and Romans 8. 
Well, I'm not going to go into it, but uh, the fourth place, this theory, it also contradicts the Sabbath command of Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. We went over that argument with reference to the gap theory, that these six days are being commemorated, and within that, those six days, is the creation of the heavens and the earth, Exodus chapter 20, and verse 11. And I might also add an argument that I don't think I put in the notes, and that is just the simple question, how is it that for millions of years, if you've got all these things, these animals and all these plants living for millions of years in Genesis 1-1, how, how, how do all these animals and plants live and die without the light yet? Light hasn't been created yet. And, and the sun hasn't been created. It wasn't created until day four. How, how did all these things survive? You might say they could survive some of these things for a few days, but for millions of years? It's just, it's just preposterous. So this is the... The land theory, or he likes to call it the historic creation theory, it kind of sounds a little better that way, but I think it's more descriptive to call it the promised land theory of Genesis chapter 1. But now I want to say a few things about another theory, and it's what we might call the old universe, young earth theory. And this is also a modern theory that is associated with Genesis, the interpretation of Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And this has been put forward by a scholar named Gorman Gray, and I'm referring in particular to his book, The Age of the Universe, What Are the Biblical Limits, which in this book was published also recently, published in 2000. And again, let me just give you, first of all, a, a description of this, of this old universe, young earth theory. Gray argues that in Genesis 1.1, we have a description of the creation of the universe out of nothing, but that the earth in its original condition was an uninhabitable condition, covered with water and a dark cloud. And he allows for the possibility that many years took place between the original creation in Genesis 1-1 and God's work later on in Genesis, in the rest of chapter 1, the six days to make the earth habitable as a place for humanity. In fact, he allows that billions of years could transpire between verses, verse 1 and verse 2. And thus, essentially what he's arguing for is for an old universe. It was, in the beginning, was the whole universe was being created. And that could have happened billions of years ago. And this solves the problem of, you know, all of you have heard this argument. Well, how is it that if there's a million light years to, to this nearest star, the star out here, how is it that that light has taken, it would take a million years, right, to get to us? And how is it that if the, if the Earth is only 8,000 years old or whatever you want to say, how, how can that be so? And, of course, we believe that God can create things with an appearance of age. God can create things with a light almost here. There's all kinds of ways in which God, God is able to solve that kind of a problem. But th this is a convenient way to solve that problem, he thinks. He believes also that God worked on planet Earth, though, for six solar days to make it habitable for humanity. And so he has an ancient universe, but a young Earth, fashioned as it is. And God's declaration in chapter 1 and verse 3, let there be light, he, is, he believes is not the original creation of light, but rather a description of what took place when God removed the dark cloud from over the Earth, so that the light could reach the earth for the first time. And the fourth day, it says, you know, God created the sun and the, and the moon, the light for the day and the light for the night. That, that description of the fourth day, 
He also says it doesn't describe the creation of the sun and the moon. But instead, it describes their appointment to function as light bearers to the earth. And the fact that God works for six solar days to make the earth to make it inhabitable, it means that the earth is very young. It's being fashioned just over six days. And he also argues that the earth's geology is best explained by a worldwide flood. So he's not explaining geology by millions of years in Genesis 1-1 and all the dinosaurs were back then, but it's a worldwide flood. This is what gives us the strata, the different uh, layers of rock and the different uh, types of animals buried in those different stratas of, of rock. And the proponents of this old universe, young earth theory, they realize the force of the argument that death is the result of Adam's sin. So he tries to respond to that argument. And so unlike the gap theory, this approach, it doesn't have a ruin that, was, that took place in Genesis 1, 1 and 2, followed by uh, reconstruction, first three, all of them. There isn't any ruin that has all these animals that die and so forth. It doesn't propose millions of years for all these dinosaurs along with their death and destruction. So basically it's a young earth and the young earth, all the dinosaurs live in this young earth. They were created within the first six days. And, but there's an ancient, it it's, could be billions of years for the universe that God made. Well, let me give you my response or my take on this theory of of uh, interpretation. In some respects, it's certainly more of a moderate theory than uh, some of them that have been proposed. Obviously, he's not trying to, to say, well, evolution was taking place. He's not, he, he doesn't believe in evolution. But let me just give you my response. First of all, the interpretation of the Hebrew words translated, let there be, in Genesis 1-3 and Genesis 1-14, Instead of a point, instead, not instead of a point, but translating, let there be, but if you translate it instead, a point, let them be appointed, this stretches the natural meaning of the text. Let me go back to Genesis 1-3. It says, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. So, Gorman Gray, he is saying, let light be appointed, and there be light. And then in verse 14, Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night. So in other words, he's saying, these, Let these lights be appointed. That he's not letting them be. In other words, he's not creating them at that point, but he is appointing them for this specific purpose. Now the natural interpretation of these words, Let there be light, in verse 3, and let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, in verse 14. The natural interpretation of those words is that that's the moment in which those things came into existence. That's why most of us have read it all the way for years as we've been Christians. That's why we've naturally read those verses. And I say to say that these creative commands, they merely refer to the appointment of heavenly bodies to a new function and not to their creation. This alters the very meaning of those verses. But then also, by way of refutation, in Genesis 1, the Hebrew word asah, which is one of the words for create. There's the Hebrew word asah in some places, then the Hebrew word bara, and they're somewhat overlapping in their, term, in their meaning, those two words. But in Genesis 1, the Hebrew word asah, it means make. It doesn't mean appoint. 
And here we especially have in mind verse 16. Notice what we read in verse 16. Then God made, there's the Hebrew word, asa. God, asa. God made two great lights. The greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And yet Gorman translates it this way. God appointed two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser to rule the night. And even though the word, it does have a variety of nuances, and there are certain places in which the word asa can be translated a point, clearly the meaning of asa that best fits this context is not a point, but make. Genesis 1 is not all about providential arrangements, where one thing is appointed for this, one thing is appointed for that. It's full of creative fiats. A fiat is when God speaks and it springs into existence. It's, that's what it's all about. Divine words that result in created entities immediately springing into existence. That's what makes this chapter so exciting to read and think about. Throughout Genesis 1, the word asa is consistently used in this sense to describe bringing into existence something that was not previously there. Now notice with me the connection between verse 6 and verse 7. Then God said, let there be, there's the, the fiat, he's speaking, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament. You see the parallel. Let there be, how is it fulfilled? God made the firmament. Now notice verses 14 and 16. Then God said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. There's the fiat, let there be. And how was it fulfilled? Verse 16, God made two great lights. Again, chapter, verse 24. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind. And how is this fulfilled? Verse 25, and God made the beast of the earth according to its kind. Each of these places, the word asa is rightly translated made. And then there's a different word that's used. Verses 20 and 21. Notice verse 20. Then God said, there's another fiat here, God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures. And then in verse 21, it says, so God, it doesn't say made, it says, so God created great sea creatures. And it translates it created instead of made because that's a different Hebrew word there. It's the word bara. And yet, you see, this shows us something of the fact that even though there are these different words, a saw, it more is appropriate for fashioning and molding something. And create, creation is usually, Baraz is usually the word for creation out of nothing. And yet, there's some overlap in these terms. And so, this teaches us that even this word, a saw, it has the basic meaning of create in this context. It doesn't have the meaning of a point. And this same pattern, let there be, followed by either asa or bara, it proves, therefore, that asa, in verse 14, it means made. It doesn't mean God appointed. God appointed this light for the day, this light for the night. And then in the third word of refutation, the idea that Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, represent a long period of time. Again, this contradicts Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Maybe we could turn there once again, Exodus chapter 20, 
verses 8 through 11. Gray's view posits a long period of time for Genesis 1, 1, and 2 before God begins to work on the earth in Genesis 1, 3. And in verses, and in his view of uh, Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, is not included in the six days that followed. So you've got the long period of time in the beginning, and then later on you have all these created days. But then what do we read when Moses instructs God's people, God's commandments, God actually, Moses is just the mouthpiece. The commandment is to remember the Sabbath day, verse 8. He speaks about how there are six days to do their labor, but the seventh day is the day of rest. And then the reason is given in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Now notice with me that here in verse 11, the six days include the creation of the heavens and the earth. And I looked up the Hebrew in both places, and it's exactly the same way in Genesis 1-1 and, and Exodus 20 and verse 11. The heavens and the earth is, a, is what we call a merism. It's two words to describe the whole universe. He created the heavens and the earth. And this is included, dear people, in the six days. It's included in the first day of God's creation. That's the natural way of interpreting Exodus chapter 20 and verse 11. So therefore, there is no room, I believe, in Genesis 1 verses 1 and 2 for millions of years, a long period of time. It's all part of God's first day of creation. That's the way I believe. We have to interpret the Bible if we're going to just go by what the Bible says instead of trying to stick science into it and change what it means. Well, we've studied the gap theory. We've studied the land of Palestine theory of Sailhammer, the old universe, young earth theory of Gray. And all three of these theories, they're all related to Genesis 1, 1, and 2. And they've all been proposed, let's remember, by Bible-believing Christians. These are not evolutionists that don't believe in, in the supernatural. They believe God created. And these theories, they should nevertheless serve as a warning against what Christians should not do when they try to speak of biblical truth to a world that doesn't believe in the Bible, but instead of humanistic theories and atheistic premises. And these theories are a clear example of what happens when we allow science to interpret Scripture. They teach us the futility of reading into the Scripture what is it there just to have a hasty compromise with atheistic thought. And all too often, Christians fall into this trap. They've been so ready to adjust the teaching of Scripture to the claims of naturalistic science because in some way, you see, science begins to be, at that point, the supreme authority. We, we can't change the fact that, well, it has to be billions of years. And so we have to somehow make the Bible say it's billions of years. And whenever we do that, we surrender the supreme authority of Scripture to the authority of godless science. Now, faith in the Creator and in His words is required for the only right mode of understanding, that which out lies outside of human knowledge. We, there is always going to be faith required. And let's remember that far from being the emotional wish fulfillment or 
Far from being irrational sacrifice of the intellect, faith is actually the appropriate way of, of a rational knowledge of God and the knowledge of God's mighty works. As T.F. Torrance has written, knowledge of God is the basic act of the human mind, and faith in its intellectual aspect is the adaptation of the reason in response to the compelling claims of God as he makes himself known to us in his word. So what it is, we see what God has shown us in his word. We see what's shouting to us of his glory all around us. And we have evidence everywhere around us. And yet, of course, it still requires faith. We don't see God. But these things testify. They're evidences of his existence, of his creative power. And of course, this doesn't mean there's no place for science. Both the heavens and the intricacies of DNA structure, they declare the glory of God. And the believing scientist, he recognizes the millions of testimonies all around him that scream out the existence of the glory and majesty and the power of God. But secular evolutionists, they object that it's all by faith. And we got science. You, you have to go by faith. And to blind so-called scientists of our age, any kind of reference to God or any kind of supernatural causation, this takes us out of the boundaries of settled science, as they like to call it, into the realm of religious mythology. And only naturalistic evolution can honestly claim to be science, they say. Everything else is just a bunch of superstition. But evolutionists, they fail to recognize that naturalistic evolution itself is a supreme act of faith. They worship at the altar of atheism and agnosticism and deism. And they have their faith as well. They can't prove without a shadow of a doubt their whole theory of evolution. Philip Johnson, professor of law at the University of California, Berkeley, his specialty is evaluation of evidences. He's written a monograph demonstrating the faith basis of evolution. It's entitled Evolution as Dogma, and he says this, what the science educators propose to teach as evolution and label as fact is based not upon any incontrovertible empirical evidence, but upon a highly controversial, controversial philosophical presupposition. And so evolutionists, they have their, their faith, they have to believe the stuff that they teach us, that they fill the Smithsonian Institute and all these other places with all their stuff, with all their signs and all their evidence is so-called, it still requires faith. They haven't produced a single example of something that's halfway muted, mutated between one thing and another, one species and another. Hasn't been one example that they've ever come up with of that. They just have to believe that this, that this has happened. And so which faith is more reasonable, the biblical faith or the evolutionary faith? And here I want to quote from G.K. Chesterton, an apologist for the faith. And this quote is in your bulletin. He says, it is absurd for the evolutionists to complain that it is unthinkable for an admittedly unthinkable God to make everything out of nothing and then pretend that it's more thinkable that nothing could turn itself into everything. And so which requires more faith? That nothing turns itself into everything or that the Big Bang starts at all? Behind the Big Bang, what's, what's behind that? Evolution is full of requirements of a staggering amount of faith. It is the evolutionist that refuses to believe the evidence. He's surrounded every day by countless wonders that proclaim the glory of God. As Paul declares in Romans 1, what may be known of God is manifest in them. 
For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Romans chapter 1. Dear people, let's stick to the faith of the Bible. Let's stick to this word that's never been changed, that we sang about a little while ago. This word that is firm, that is settled. This word that doesn't need amendments, doesn't need revised theories, as evolutionists constantly have to have. Let's stick to the word, not only of, of this book, but the word that shouts to us all around us in creation. And let's believe in what God has said in his word. And let's not fall prey to the temptation to somehow think that we've got to fit in all this modern scientific theory into what God says in his word. Let's stick to this book. And remember that if we stick to this book, we will not go wrong. This book will stand us instead not only in this life, but in all eternity. Well, may God help you and me to remain firm, to remain anchored in the words of the text of Holy Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We bless you for the testimony that we have in your word. We thank you and bless you for the testimony of creation that is all around us. We think of the remarkable things that we have seen with our own eyes. We think of the amazing film we saw a little while ago that described the birth of a baby and its growth inside a mother's womb, the miracles that that, what takes place there. We think of what we have seen in some of the presentations that our dear brother Andy McIntosh has given to us of the marvels of your creative power. And, O oh Lord, we confess that we believe that you are the God that created the heavens and the earth. And we believe that you did this, you created it, you brought it into existence, and you fashioned it into its present form in six days. Help us, O oh Lord, to stand firm, resting upon that truth. Help us not to be budged and to be moved from what your word teaches Give us grace, O Lord, at the same time to be gracious with others that differ from us in these things. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful in bearing witness to the truth of your word to this lost and dying world. Open the eyes of those that won't see those things that are all around them. They're blind, Lord. That's why they don't understand. Open their eyes, we do pray. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.